Well, it's a, a rainy day. A great time for us to gather and to worship the Lord together, to, uh, to hear His Word as well. And uh, I just love the worship this morning. And as I was looking at the team, I thought, you know how good God has been to our fellowship to give us such wonderful people who love to worship. And then the signing was just beautiful. Thank you so much. It was just um, a real encouragement to all of us. I know it was for me. Uh, I want to make sure that those of you that are new and here for the first time that you know we love you in the name of the Lord Jesus and you're welcome here and we pray that God will bless your time and that, um, that the teaching of the Word will be an encouragement to you. And we are continuing our study in the book of Revelation and we're uh, in chapter 12 and I'd like you to turn there to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the supernatural war that's taking place in the heavenlies this morning. And we'll just be looking at the first nine verses today. Again, this is the apocalypse or the unveiling of the things that aren't seen by Jesus Christ to John for our benefit and for the benefit of the church. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled to the desert, into a place prepared uh, for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Father, we come to you this morning and ask that you would give us insight and understanding into this text and this passage. And Lord, this isn't just for the future. God, although it is predictive, it's prophecy of what will take place, but God, there are things right here that we can learn and apply to our own lives. And Lord, I pray for every man and woman here, first of all, God, that you would reveal yourself and that you would open up their eyes and my eyes that we might see what's really happening in this world. And God, that we might take stock properly of the truth and then walk in it. Father, I pray for every person here that you would bring encouragement and light and understanding. Father, I know that there very likely are some who are discouraged today and I pray for them especially. God, that you would lift them in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, just pick them up right where they are and through this message begin to encourage and build up and edify and give hope. Father, we love you. And Holy Spirit, once again, I come and I just ask in Jesus' name that you would fill my mouth, that I might properly feed those who you died for. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. In 1992, 
some uh, academics and historians got together to do a comprehensive study of war throughout the history of the world, they came up with some very interesting facts. Since 3600 BC, the world has known only 292 years of peace. During that period, there have been 14,350 wars, large and small, in which 3.64 billion people have lost their lives. That's over half of the current population of the world. The value of property destroyed is equal to the gold, a golden belt that would be 97 miles wide and 33 feet, 33 feet thick encircling the entire globe. And since 650 BC, there have also been 1,656 armed races, only 16 of which have not ended in war, and those that didn't end in war ended in the economic collapse of the countries who were involved. We have been in a state of war almost continuously, somewhere in the world, some hot spot, and we find that more and more taking place almost persistently since the beginning of time. What's behind it? Why are we constantly at war? What is the problem that we can't get along? Why can't one nation get along with another and one person get along with another? What's behind it? Well, the Bible makes it clear that behind all of these things is Satan himself. His purpose is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's all he knows how to do. And he's extremely good at it. And so he spends his life and his time doing nothing more than destroying and bringing devastation to the world. And in this text that we're looking at today in Revelation, John actually gives us an, an open view. Actually, the Lord Jesus opens the way. John is merely recording it, but what he records is, is a revelation, an unveiling of actually what's taking place in the heavenly realm right now. You know what our biggest problem is? We can't see it. And because we can't see it, we operate as if it's not happening. But all... All the while, all through the world, even now, there is a spiritual warfare being waged in the heavenly realm. Paul talks about this in Ephesians and he says that we're not to be confused and fight this as a fleshly battle. You know, when you get in an argument with your spouse or with a co-worker or a neighbor and you're thinking, I've just got to make this right and you're tenaciously going after it and you just won't stop until it's finished. Anybody ever done that at home? Gotten in a, in a really ridiculous argument? over nothing and you look back on it afterwards and you're going, why did we do that? Well, I'll tell you why you were doing that because Satan behind the scenes is orchestrating the destruction of everything in your life and everything in the world. And so Paul tells us that we are not to wage the warfare as the world does. We are to understand as believers that there is far more going on than the human eye sees. And we have a picture of it in this text today. It's a gift from God that we might know how to properly conduct ourselves and that we might know how to wage a good warfare and that we might not be baffled and confused and deceived and ripped off by the enemy in thinking our problem is with some human being. So my objective this morning is to be able to share it with you in such a manner that you're encouraged and, and you're made less afraid than you've ever been before of the enemy and more confident in God than you've ever been before in God's power to deliver you from every single device and effort and plan that Satan has for your life. Every single one. Not some of them, but all of them you can be delivered by and from through Jesus Christ. 
Now John begins the text by talking about a wondrous sign and I, I've mentioned uh, frequently during the teaching of Revelation that we need to just take the Bible literally. We need to take it just as literally as the prophecies of the Old Testament which were all fulfilled literally. Unless the Bible tells us otherwise. Either through the context or directly. In this case, we have a very direct instruction that we are to take this text to some degree symbolically. Now John says that there was a wondrous, a great, actually the word mega, I love that word, it's a kind of a, it used to be a popular word, not so much anymore, but mega is actually the Greek for great. It's a great and wondrous sign. It's, it's, it's bigger than life. It's, it's gargantuan in its proportions. And John is looking at this and, and the first thing he says is, I saw a sign. Now this word sign is interesting because it means a, a miracle or a token or something that's pointing symbolically to another, uh, another meaning or some truth or idea. And so we know right away that John is giving us a, an insight that this is not to necessarily be taken at face value. There's some sign or symbolism behind these particular characters and events that we're going to be talking about today. And so the first sign that he sees is a woman that's pregnant with child. She's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. Now the, the question that, uh, of course, everyone is wondering is, who is this woman? Now, the Catholic Church believes that this is um, Mary, the mother of Jesus. But, of course, the Catholic Church believes everything's Mary, the mother of Jesus. But Mary is not the person that John is referring to, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Some people believe that this represents the church, but this is inaccurate as well, and I'll tell you why again in a moment. Because it doesn't fit the, the, um, uh, the rest of the characteristics that John lays out for us in this passage. I believe that this woman is Israel. And the reason is, is that the only time that you find the sun and the moon and the twelve stars all mentioned together in relationship to people is in Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, we have the story about Joseph and his dream. Does everybody remember Joseph and his dream? He, he sees the, the, uh, the sun and the moon and the twelve stars bowing down before him. And the brothers and the father and mother knew right away what it was referring to. They said, we're not going to bow down to you. If you're thinking about us, no way is that going to happen. Well, we know from the story that one day, not long past that time, all of them were bowing down before Joseph, who had become second in charge of Egypt. And so these, this moon and this star and the twelve, uh, this moon and the sun and the twelve stars are representative of Jacob and Rachel and the covenant people of God and the twelve stars, the twelve sons of Jacob and the patriarchs. And all of this pointing toward the people of Israel. That was the beginning of the nation of Israel. We also know that this is Israel because in verse 2, we find this woman with child, and this child, in verse 5, is going to rule with an iron scepter. Now, we talked about this last week. Psalm 2, prophetic psalm about the Messiah, talks specifically about Jesus coming, ruling with an iron scepter. And again, as I mentioned, we'll talk about in, the, in future lessons on Revelation, that this is during the time of the great millennial reign of Christ, when He will rule with an iron scepter. Now, that she is Israel, the nation, and not simply Mary, the mother of Jesus, is clear from the fact that she is going to be persecuted during the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. And obviously, the, uh, the mother of Jesus is, is long gone. She's not around for this persecution, nor will the church of Jesus Christ be around during that period of time either. 
There will be a remnant. There will be those who will come to Christ during this period of time, during these very difficult days. Most will be martyred. But the church will have been raptured uh, prior to this event. So we're talking about Israel, the covenant people of God. And by the way, He is not finished with them. A lot of people think that God is done with Israel, and that is not true. God is not finished with His people. He has more plans for them, and it behooves us as believers to do what the Scripture says and to pray for the peace of Israel, to love that nation and do whatever we can to further the purposes of God there. Now, we find that this woman in verse 2 is pregnant and crying out in pain as she was about to give birth. You know, I remember a time when I was young and youthful and had already had children and I... I didn't realize in my ignorance I was sitting at a table and some women were over at our house and my wife was there and there must have been three or four other women and they'd all had babies and I was sitting there and all of a sudden the topic turned to childbirth. You guys know what I'm talking about? The guys especially know what I'm talking about? Well, the the whole topic turned to childbirth and, and all of a sudden it was, you know, a lot of detail and information that I wasn't really interested in but I, I was there when my sons were born and I was really into it and I, start, I tried to talk a little bit and it was like what do you know <laughs> and I, did, I just got my lesson that guys are not supposed to talk about childbirth in any sense in which we know something about childbirth because we really don't know and there's really truth to it and so I've learned over the years that on those occasions when women gravitate toward this topic, I realize that my place is in the kitchen doing dishes or something else. And so that's what I do. Whenever that topic comes up now, I'm in the kitchen doing dishes and homemaking and listening and just uh, vicariously participating. But I've realized that I can't, uh, I can't really fully understand, so I'm eliminated from the conversation. But I have heard probably the best explanation of what the pain of childbirth is like from a woman who said that it's like if you can grab your upper lip with both hands and pull it over the top of your head, that's what childbirth is like. And so, um, anyway, I'm glad that you enjoyed my sharing about that so much and that it has so much to do with this message too. But this woman is in pain and is about to give birth and this is really a fulfillment of the prophecies in Isaiah chapter 7 that says the Lord is going to give a sign that a virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we have this great Redeemer, our Savior Jesus Christ, who is about to be birthed through the nation of Israel. Now John then sees another sign in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Now, we already know who this dragon is because in verse 9 that we'll touch on in a few moments, he is identified as Satan, the devil himself. Now, a lot of us miss him because we have been almost trained from youth that the devil runs around with a cape and uh, red leotards and uh, a pitchfork with little horns on his head. But really nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible says that he comes as an angel of light to deceive and to confuse the nations. I've had people ask me, both believer and unbeliever alike, why would God create evil? Why would God create Satan in the first place? Was it so that he had an opponent and you could have good against bad? And, and the answer is no. The answer is, is that God didn't create evil. He created the most beautiful and wondrous 
creature in all of his creation. The Bible says that Satan in, uh, in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 was the most beautiful of God's creation and some believe that he was actually the worship leader of the heavenly host. He was one of the cherubim, uh, almost like a brother in a sense, not really, but in equal abilities and value uh, to the angel Michael that we hear so much of and Gabriel as well and possibly to the four living creatures. Now, the unfortunate thing is that Satan in his worship decided, I would really like to have some of this come in my direction. I would really like to be worshipped myself and I'm almost as great as God. And it seems completely unfair to me that God would receive all of this worship and not let any of it trickle down onto us. And so he began to have a heart that was lifted up in pride and wanted to be worshipped. You see, God even gave angels free will. Amazing. But the heavenly host had the option of either worshipping or not worshipping God. Now we know what the consequence of his choice was. The Bible tells us in uh, Genesis 3.15 all of these events with Satan took place long before creation because certainly Satan was in the garden deceiving Eve. So the deception and the fall of, of Satan himself from the heavenly place took place before the creation of the world. And, uh, and we know from, uh, as I mentioned in Genesis 3.15 that it was prophesied that he would be crushed his head would be crushed by the Messiah. Now, he's identified as having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on the seven heads. The seven heads stand uh, and the seven crowns speak of the wisdom and the comprehensive ruling power of Satan over the earth. And the ten horns relate to the ten nation confederation of a revived Roman Empire that will take place in the last days. Many think it's uh, the United Nations, that that will be the source of, uh, of these ten confederate nations or it could be through the economic community that's uh, already formulating and uh, developing a whole new world order including a common currency that is so close to taking place already uh, in the world. And so uh, out of these uh, horns will come the Antichrist and the Beast, the, the other uh, uh, characters that we're going to be studying in the future. But suffice it to say that he's got these uh, seven heads with seven crowns and ten horns and he will sweep a third of the stars out of the sky. Now, this could be physical stars. Satan is extremely angry right now. And he will be furious later. His anger is going to increase and multiply. And we'll talk about why in a few minutes. But in his frustration, in his perpetual defeats before God and before the angels of God, he is just angry at losing so much and so often. Have you ever seen a team that really has the power to play well on occasion or most of the time and they just get clobbered by another team? You see a basketball team or a football team and what starts happening? They start getting angry and they start doing irrational things and that's when you know flagrant fouls are committed and people get punched and people get thrown out of games because they're frustrated. And that's the condition of Satan. Even now... But in that future time, it will multiply many times over. And so it's possible that just in his anger, he just wipes out a third of the physical stars. That's a great possibility. But the scripture also uses the term stars frequently for angels. In fact, Satan himself is called the morning star. And so we have the possibility that these are not physical stars, but actually angels who have revolted with Satan against God and his purposes. 
And a third of these angels, described for us in Isaiah 14 and, and Ezekiel again, the Bible says went with Satan. So when Satan actually fell because of his pride and his desire to be worshipped, a third of the angels went with him and said, we're with you all the way, man. Go, go, go. We will worship you. And they became his allies and his demonic hordes that, that, uh, that wreak havoc upon the earth even today. They hate the plan of God. They hate the nation of Israel. How else can you explain the persecution of the Jews from almost every quarter of the world throughout their history? How can you explain such a small country drawing so much attention except that Satan knows its strategic role and purposes in the future plan of God? And Satan and his angels hate you because of your strategic importance your incredible value and God's plan for your life in the unfolding of the future of the world. Now this dragon in what I think may be one of the most ugly pictures in all of Scripture if you really look at it and think about it is standing before this woman who's about to give birth so that he can devour her child the moment it is born. This is beyond cruel and inhumane. This is unspeakable. But that's the nature and character of Satan. He's ruthless. It's not like you go into a boxing match with him and then he, you can call a timeout. It's not like there's, there, there are no, no holds barred in this game with him. It's to the death. It's to the finish. And he won't be satisfied until every person connected or related to Jesus Christ is crushed and eliminated. And so he's standing before this woman realizing the incredible strategic importance of the birth of the Messiah. And he's waiting so that when the Messiah is born, he can devour the child. But I have to tell you that long before the Messiah even came, Satan was strategically planning to eliminate even the possibility of the coming Messiah being born. And I'm just going to share with you a few. There are literally dozens and dozens in Scripture. In fact, when you put on a different pair of glasses, when you read Scripture, the Old Testament, and look for Satan's activity in the Old Testament, it's everywhere. He's everywhere working. Let me give you some illustrations. Satan knew God's plan because God revealed it in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan would bruise the heel of the Messiah but he would be crushed by the Messiah. And he knew that that lineage would come through Adam and Eve and their children. So what does he do? He motivates Cain to kill Abel. We find Satan causing evil to pervade the earth to such a degree that he had to destroy the entire world with a flood. There were only eight people left and Satan was so close. You know, I, we don't have any information on it, but I don't have a doubt in my mind that Satan tried to sink that boat. He only was eight people away from destroying the plan of God to crush him once and for all. Then Satan motivated Esau to attempt to kill Jacob, Isaac's son, who was the son of promise. After that, Satan gave Pharaoh the idea of killing every Hebrew boy 
to eliminate the possibility of the successor of Jesus Christ coming to pass. Satan also tried to kill Saul or tried to kill David using Saul. Remember how you know, uh, Saul became so angry and, and it says the, the, the spirit came upon him, an evil spirit, and he tried to pin David to the wall. Why? Because David was in the line, the succession of the line of the Messiah. And Satan thought, if I could kill David, then I will end the threat, the possibility of the Messiah. One of the most amazing scriptures in, in the Bible relating to this is in 2 Chronicles 21 and 22. And I won't read it to you, but I'll just mention it. It's a time when uh, the kingdom was, uh, there was a coup that was taking place and the line of David was at risk and all but one little boy was murdered. For six years, they kept Joash hidden in the palace. How do you hide a little boy for six years? I don't know how they did it, but God allowed that little boy to be protected that the line might be preserved. Satan was one baby away from accomplishing his plan. Do you remember after Jesus was born, Satan tried to kill all the children directly. He put it in, in, uh, in Herod's mind that I'm going to kill every boy one to three in the entire country and I'm going to eliminate this threat. Now, Herod was thinking about himself. He didn't want any competitor. But who was really behind it? Satan. I've got to kill the Messiah. I haven't been able to stop it yet and now he's here. I've got to kill him. The great dragon standing before the woman trying to devour the Messiah. And having failed at this, I mean, can you imagine? I just can't imagine losing over and over and over <laughs> like Satan does because God just works right around him. It doesn't matter what Satan throws at him. God works right around him and fulfills his purposes. You remember in Luke uh, chapter 4, all these people trying to kill Jesus. You remember in the passages in the Gospels, over and over and over, they took up stones, they tried to kill him and then Jesus passed through. How did he do that? I don't know. I can't tell you how he did it. But all I can tell you is that there were people inspired by Satan himself to bring to an end the, the, the work of the Messiah so that he wouldn't make it to the cross and accomplish the purposes of God. He was so bold in Matthew 4 during the temptation of Jesus that he even tried to get Jesus to kill himself. <laughs> he said, throw yourself off the temple. It, it'll be an incredible miracle. It'll be, it'll be wondrous. And you'll just get back up and you'll just, the angels will bury you up and... And he was trying to get Jesus to commit suicide to end the threat of his head being crushed. And after all the failures, after all of the, the work that God has done to thwart and to counter Satan's plans, he still has not given up. And he still is trying to devour Israel. I don't need to talk about it much. All you have to do is read the headlines. If you're informed about Israel and, the, and, uh, and the, the Palestinians in the area, there's one objective the Palestinians have and they, they don't say it to President Clinton and it doesn't reach our newspapers very often, but if you read, uh, uh, for instance, Yasser Arafat's speeches to the Palestinian, uh, the PLO organizations, when they have their banquets, he says, I have one objective and that is to drive Israel into the Mediterranean Sea. I will not be satisfied until the, every Jew is eradicated. That is his policy. Now, he's chummy with Clinton and others uh, because, of course, he knows that policy won't fly, but that is their ultimate objective. Why? Because Satan is determined. See, Israel has a very strategic and important place in the end times, and we'll study that in the weeks ahead. 
But he is still trying to eliminate the threat of his final destruction. And he is still threatening and shaking our cage, even as the body of Christ, trying to frighten us into submission and into fear. So, in spite of all of these things, God is working. You see, when you came to Christ, you made an eternal friend. No friend like him in the world. Nothing like Jesus Christ in the relationship with him. But you also made an enemy. An enemy who has one thing on his mind, and that is your destruction. You have become a target if you are a thriving, fruitful, obedient Christian. If you're nominal, don't worry about it. You don't have too much to worry about because he's not worried about you. You're, you're, the nominal Christianity in your life is, is uh, enough of an effort on his part that he will not disturb you. But if you are a fruitful, thriving, obedient Christian to Jesus Christ, you pose a great threat to the kingdom of, of, uh, of Satan and he will do everything he can to stop you. And uh, if you want to look on your own in how you can resist and how you can come against such a formidable foe, I encourage you to read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-10. through 10. But the birth of this child takes place in verses 5 and 6 and the Bible tells us that a male child was born who we said will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Again, a reference to Psalm 2, a messianic psalm. And her child was snatched up to God and to His throne. Now, this is interesting because uh, this really is a description of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. The word snatched up means to, uh, to seize or to catch up. It's the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians of Paul being caught up to the third heaven in his vision. Uh, the word is harpazo. And uh, the same word uh, used when Philip was taken away from the eunuch that he was speaking with. All of a sudden he was in a different town. He was just snatched right out of the, right out of the, the, the air and taken and delivered somewhere else. He doesn't even know how it happened. But they use the very same word. It's a snatching up and a pulling away, in this case, of Philip. It's also the same word that's used of the rapture of the church that we've already taken a look at in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Now, having this taken place, you fast forward to this woman fleeing into the desert during the end times to a place that the Bible said has been prepared for her by God where she may take care, be taken care of for 1,260 days, which we know is three and a half years. It's the final three and a half years of the Great Tribulation period. Now, I find it interesting that uh, when we went to Israel, we went to a place called the Rock City of Petra. And it was really one of the highlights for me of the whole trip, just because of the phenomenal work that went into creating the city. It was essentially carved out of the rock. As you go down this, it's, it's, you can't really call it a valley or a gully. It's, it's so narrow in some spots that you can only have a two or maybe three people walking shoulder to shoulder. It's that narrow. And it's about 100 or two, three, maybe 300 feet high in places. And it's just, it, some, in some places it gets narrower as it goes up. And so it's this gorge that's been cut out somehow by, by water, maybe even during the time of the flood. But when you walk through this gorge, it opens up into this expansive valley that at one time during the first century uh, accommodated over 60,000 people. They have an amphitheater there that holds over 10,000 people and it's just carved right into the stone, right into the valley. And it's an unbelievable place. It's been a place traditionally where people have fled during times of, of persecution. And I believe that this is the location that this woman, the people of Israel, the remnant, those who come to Christ 
after the rapture of the church, during the Great Tribulation, as a result of the witness of the 144,000 Messianic Jews, as a result of the two witnesses, as a result of, of uh, all the evidence in the books that are left and the scriptures that they will uh, finally look at, having ignored them, thinking that they were uh, nothing but myth until all of these events unfold and finally they will receive Christ. And a remnant of these people who were not martyred during this very difficult time, I believe, will flee to this place called Petra. Now, it's interesting that uh, there are a lot of other people that believe the same thing, so much so that uh, businessmen and people of wealth who are Christians, not just in the United States, but in other parts of the world, actually are stockpiling food in Petra. Tons and tons of food, even now, are stockpiled there, along with medicines and all kinds of supplies. And they're doing that so that they can provide for these people who will be fleeing during this very troublesome and difficult time. Now, I think it's very nice of them to do that. I think, it's, I think their idea is good. But I'm thinking to myself, since when did God need our help? Since when did God ever need us to step in and rescue Him and to provide for His people? Now, again, I'm not ridiculing the idea. But if you look at the history of Israel, who took care of them for 40 years in the desert? I, don't, I didn't see any Egyptian businessmen shelling out, you know... Uh, sending their camels full of you know goat's milk and, and bread. No, it was God. He sent manna from heaven and even quail. They had meat, bread, and water. Everything that they needed. I'm reminded of, um, of Elijah the prophet. You remember how the Bible says that he was actually fed by ravens? That's kind of gross. But the fact is that the Bible says that they brought him bread and meat in the morning and at night. And he had water by a brook. God provided for him. And it goes on to say during a time of despair that, that Elijah had after uh, facing uh, the prophets of Baal, he was scared to death of Jezebel. And so he ran off in, in a despondent uh, state and he sat under a broom tree. And uh, I guess it's, you know, like different types of brooms, but he was under a broom tree. And at that point, what happened is that uh, he just was so discouraged, he fell asleep and he was famished. And an, and an angel woke him up and said, hey, I've made, I've made lunch for you. Come and eat. And so the angel made lunch. And so when you look at Scripture, even Jesus Christ, you remember during the temptation, he was fasting for those 40 days and he had nothing to eat. And all of a sudden, what happens at the end of those 40 days? Well, the Bible tells us that angels came and attended to him. And I believe the angels fed him and they took care of him. Gave him the water and the food that he needed in order to, to hike back out of that desert area. You know, I want to encourage you as a body and as individual believers is that God will provide for you. God can do whatever He wants. He has the power. He doesn't need anybody's help. What He's looking for is men and women who will completely put their hope in Him. There are lots of people who scramble when there's a need. They scramble and they put their, you know, their supplies together and they make it all happen. There's nothing wrong with being prudent. But God is looking for men and women who will absolutely commit themselves to the sovereignty of God who is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these material things will be given to you as well. God can provide and I believe in the last days that He will provide even as He has promised here in this passage. Now in verse 7, we find that there is a great war that takes place. There's a war in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back but he wasn't strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. 
Now, the Bible tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against these rulers and principalities and powers and authorities really of this dark world, of the heavenly realm. And we're getting a picture of it right here through John. And so we find Michael and his angels fighting against Satan. And this event is prophesied in Daniel 12.1. But I, I want to just talk about Michael for a moment. Something, a couple of things that are interesting about him. One is his name. His name is made up of three parts. Uh, the first part, my, is, is, uh, in Hebrew means who. The, the second is actually spelled K-E, but Ka is as or like. And the third part of his name, L, is the meaning is God in Hebrew. So Michael means who is like God. There isn't anyone like God. It's a rhetorical question. His, the very name of God in Michael is rhetorical. Is there anyone like him? And of course the answer is no. And I just think it's, a, it's incredibly humorous and interesting that God sends Michael, who says, who is like God in his name, to an angel who says, I am like God. I want to be worshipped. And so Michael goes toe-to-toe with Satan. Michael's also called the, the chief of the princes. He is the archangel. And he has great power as the leader of God's army. Now, this isn't Michael's first encounter with Satan. We actually have a number of other places in Scripture. I think, personally, I think there are thousands of encounters that aren't even recorded for us. Possibly. But we do have some that are recorded for us. Uh, do you remember when uh, there was an angel, a, a demon, battling with an angel of God to deliver a message to Daniel in answer to his prayer? And we have that uh, recorded for us in Daniel chapter 10. Or actually, I'm sorry, yeah, Daniel 10, uh, verse 13. For 21 days, this underling of Michael was fighting against an underling of Satan and, uh, and he couldn't quite make headway. And so the angel of God called in Michael. And in a moment, Michael had the whole thing resolved and the prayer was answered because Michael is so powerful. We also have a dispute over the body of Moses in Jude chapter 1, verse 9. And again, Satan lost the battle with Michael. We find out that even in this case, the dragon and his angels aren't strong enough. Now, I want to take a moment to talk about this because this is so important. And this may be actually the most important part of this whole message. And I hope a great encouragement to you. Satan has perpetuated a lie that he is God's opposite. It's a lie. It's not even close to being true. Satan is not God's opposite. Satan is a creation of God. Satan doesn't even have close... He doesn't even come close to the power of God Himself. God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. And Satan is none of those. He can't be everywhere at once and he doesn't know everything. And he doesn't have all power. But he gives everyone the impression that it's God and Satan battling, which is a lie. It's not true. In a moment, in a, in a blink of an eye, God could wipe out Satan and his demons just like that in a moment. Just a word from the throne of God and it will be done. And that is how it will end, by the way. But Satan has given the church a fear that somehow we're up against some incredible demonic force that just can squash us at a moment's notice. It's not true. It's a lie. Everything he says is a lie. Why would he want an inflated view of himself? Why would he want to to make himself bigger than he really is? To frighten us. 
as a church. I see people and I hear about people and I've read books where it's just like hand-wringing you know, about Satan and they've got all of these strategies of how you've got to identify the demon in order to get a control of the demon. You've got to do this and you've got to do that and they've got these dozens of steps on how to overcome the enemy. You want me to tell you the, the way to overcome the enemy? Call on God. Amen. That's all you have to do. I'll tell you the mistake that we make. The greatest mistake that you can make and that I can make when it comes to battling the enemy is to take him on by ourself. That, that occurs when we don't pray. Something's happening and we've got all these conflicts and difficulties taking place in life and we just keep forging ahead, trying to work it out. That's when he has us because he is definitely more powerful than any of us are by ourselves. But he looks like a wimp, a weakling compared to, to Michael and even more so to the power of God. So any man or woman who simply is willing to humble themselves at a moment's notice and get on their knees and cry out to God and say, God, I'm getting hassled by Satan or one of his demons. Would you come to my aid and rescue me and vanquish his efforts? And you know what? If you will wait patiently for God in that kind of a state, God will deliver you. It's happened to me over and over and over. Many of you have prayed for me. I'm not ashamed to call you and ask for prayer. And you shouldn't be ashamed to ask each other for prayer. We need each other. But I've learned, especially on this island, in the first year and a half I was here, I had to be down on my knees and crying out and on the phone with you guys, pray for me, I'm getting hammered. And all of a sudden, in, a, in a, sometimes 15 minutes, sometimes two hours, sometimes a half a day, all of a sudden the blackness lifts. And it's, you, who can explain it? No one. But God will answer every single time a man or a woman who loves Jesus, who's called by His name, who's getting hassled by the enemy, who will simply drop to their knees and call out on God, will be delivered every single time. A hundred percent of the time. Not sometimes or, you know, gee, I, you know, this is my batting average with Satan. No. Every single time He will be defeated. The only time that He wins is when we fail to call on God. I want to tell you something. You've got nothing to fear from Satan. Nothing. He is a defeated foe. And any time there's any temptation on your heart, or in your heart, or on your part, to be afraid of him, that's the work of the enemy, giving you an overinflated picture of his power. He's already defeated, but he's still loose for a short period of time. But that time will come to a close because we find out that they lose their place in heaven. Up until this point, we know that Satan actually had access to heaven. You know, in Job 1, we know right away, uh, Satan came and presented himself with the other angels of God. And he, and he was actually had access to God. They had a conversation. And it's recorded for us in that book. It's a fascinating text. In the course of the conversation, Satan begins to accuse, which he's very good at. He's a slanderer. That's what he does best. He slanders. And he brings false accusation and true accusations against the body of Christ. And he did the same thing with Job. But at this point, he will be hurled down to earth. He will no longer have access to God's throne. God is just, that's it. I'm finished. I don't want to even see you again. I don't want to talk to you anymore. And he hurls him to earth. And as we'll study in the weeks ahead, this makes him even angrier. And so, the ancient serpent, the devil, is hurled down. It's interesting his names, there are many names for him in the Bible, but 
these three are interesting. The ancient serpent is really a clear reference to the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, the serpent who deceived Eve. And is a reminder that he is constantly active in his temptation and deception of the church and the world. Uh, he's called the devil, uh, which means defaming or slander. And according to Romans 8.3, uh, he really is a master accuser in Revelation 12.10 as well. And he's also called Satan, which means the adversary. He is the adversary of the church. He's the adversary of God. He's the adversary of every purpose that God has for your life. And I'm telling you, and I'm warning you, and I want to encourage you, is that he is trying to derail you even today. Some of you are going through things and you're just thinking, I can't handle any more of these conflicts. Some of you are having problems with your spouse. And you're tackling this from a, a simply a human standpoint and you are losing the battle. Some of you have conflicts with co-workers or with family members, especially during the Christmas season. It's like, is there anybody that doesn't have some stress with family during Christmas? It's like supposed to be the most wonderful time and, and yet people are in agony over family problems. Satan is trying to derail you. God has an incredible purpose. You are strategic. Each and every one of you are important in the kingdom of God. There isn't a person here that knows Jesus that doesn't count. What you are and what God is doing in you matters. It's so important that you take your stand and that you let your life count for the purposes of God. You are important and what you do matters. You may feel like just one person. You may feel like just, you know, oh, I don't have that gift or this gift. I'm really not that important and I'm telling you that's a lie from hell. You are strategic. You have a purpose. You have a plan that God has instilled in you and wants to help you carry out that's important for the end times and for the purposes of God. You need to find out what it is. And you need to live it and you need to walk in it and you need to realize as you do so that it's not going to be without resistance from the enemy. So expect some difficulties. Expect things to go wrong. Don't get blown out by that. Just say, well, I must be doing something right. The enemy's taking his time and his effort to, to attack me. And then surrender it to God, get on your knees, call for prayer, and watch it lift and watch Him be defeated over and over and over in any and every area of your life. God can do it, but I want to tell you that God loves you and God has a plan for your life and you count. And it's important that you not sit and wait, but that you are active in fulfilling the purposes of God in your life. You know what, I really am frustrated by the demonic nature of Satan is that he tempts us to sin and then when we do, he assaults us with guilt. Have you ever noticed that? He gets us to do evil and then he clobbers us with what a crumb we are. Isn't that, he's a great friend. He's a wonderful guy. You know, when he sees you headed down the wrong path, he says, that's it, you're going, that's God's plan for your life, keep going, yeah, don't worry that it's a little bit out of scripture, that's not really scripturally sound, but you know what, you're different. You're, it's okay if you divorce your husband, or it's okay if you divorce your wife, because that's my plan for you. That's my wonderful plan for your life. It's okay that you fudge on your business dealings, or that you steal, or that you cheat, even in these small ways, because other people do it. It's, it's not that big a deal, you get the idea of what I'm talking about. And he gets you to go down the wrong path. And then when you do, and you get convicted, and then you come back to the throne of God, what is he whispering in your ear? You worthless wretch. He's not going to accept you. You've screwed up too bad. Right? Isn't that how he works? Well, you have to come against that with the truth of God. And in Jesus' name. He always lies against the truth. He's always denying the truth. 
And when he's not doing that, he's counterfeiting and imitating the truth or perverting and distorting it. But one day, not long from now, God will vanquish him. God will be finished with him. And God will hurl him to the earth. And then finally, he will be hurled into the very depths of hell. You know, the other thing that, uh, that Satan has perpetuated, I don't even know how this came up and how the lie started, but he's got this lie going around that he's going to be the chief. He's going to be the main dude in hell. And he's going to be guiding and directing everything. That's a lie from hell too. You know what the truth is? He's going to be the chief victim of hell. He's not going to be in charge. He's going to be the chief victim. And he knows it because he knows what the Word says. I want to finish by reading from Romans chapter 8, the the verses that Bruce read. Verse 31. Knowing God's love, knowing His power, knowing His purposes for your life, knowing His love for you, knowing that He has chosen you and it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Him, knowing that His grace is sufficient for every circumstance. Paul says, What then shall we say in response to this? (laughs) If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Of course, it's Satan. But Christ Jesus died, who died more than that, who was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God. And what is He doing? He's interceding on your behalf, day and night. Satan comes with an accusation, a lie, a slander. Jesus says, no, 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 it's wrong. Taken care of, God. Taken care of. Every single time. And it's no doubt, no wonder, with all of the accusations that the Bible says that Jesus is interceding incessantly for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we thank You for this time. Thank You for Your Word, God, and thank You for opening our understanding to realize that although Satan is powerful, he can't even go one round with you. And the time is coming when he will be finished. And even now, You've given us power through Your Spirit and through your word to conquer every single effort that he has, every plan, every destructive device and strategy can be overcome by men and women who are willing to fall to their knees and to resist him, knowing the truth and standing firm in the word of God. And Lord, I just have such an intense sense this morning from your spirit that you want people to know that you've got a plan that's so critical and they are an important part of it. And I pray for every man and woman and young person here that they wouldn't miss it, that they might walk in it, God, in your power, fulfilling your purposes. God, we ask that you would come quickly. And until that day comes, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be faithful, unafraid of this enemy who's already defeated foe. God, magnify yourself through every man and woman. And help us to follow you with a whole heart and to remember that this battle 
is not against flesh and blood, but it's something that's being fought in the heavenlies and we need to use spiritual weapons to fight it. So help us to have wisdom and insight, God, and to fight the warfare, and to finish our course and to run the race that we might hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.